This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Eclectic Tech is brought to you by ICOM. ICOM, for the love of ham radio, is about the passion for an incredible hobby. Visit ICOM in the community webpage at www.icomamerica.com forward slash community. Have you ever heard of a device known as a radio sound? I'm guessing not many have, but if I said weather balloon, I'm willing to bet that term would be more familiar, huh? Well, way, way back in the late 1800s, meteorologists started sending hydrogen or helium-filled balloons into the upper atmosphere to gather information about conditions aloft. They would do that so that they could make more accurate weather forecasts. These balloons carried pretty crude data recorders. They were mainly mechanical devices to an altitude of about 110,000 feet. At the low air pressure at that altitude, the balloons would expand and then finally burst, and the recorder would drift back to Earth under a parachute. There was a big problem with this, though. Scientists had to rely on someone finding the recorder and returning it to the weather station before they could examine the data. Imagine the odds of that happening, and you have a pretty good idea of why they were highly motivated to find a solution. Well, the solution was radio. Rather than waiting for random chance to deliver the data, why not equip the recorder with a radio transmitter and send back the data in real time? The first recorded launch of such a device was by Robert Bureau in France, who gave the name Radioson to his device. In case you're interested, the anniversary of that first launch is January 7, 1929, and it's celebrated as Radioson Day, at least by some people. The first practical radioson was developed by a Russian scientist named Pavel Molinchov in 1930. The next year, Professor Vilho Viasala of Finland designed and flew a more sophisticated radioson, and in 1936 he established the Viasala company to manufacture the devices, and they're still doing so today. On December 23, 1955, the first successful U.S. radioson flight was made from Blue Hill Observatory in Massachusetts, and the rest, as they say, is history. Now, I find this next bit of information amazing. Did you know that every day at 1200 and 2400 UTC, weather stations across the entire planet all launch radiosondes? To give you an idea of the scope of this, there are 92 radiosonde launching stations just in the United States. That means that every day, twice a day, a total of 184 balloons take to the sky. Multiply that figure times 365 days in a year, and you have a pretty staggering annual total. The flight profile is just the same as it was in the 1930s, though. A neoprene balloon hauls the radiosonde to about 110,000 feet, give or take. The balloon bursts, and the device falls back to Earth with a parachute. During the flight, which they call a sounding, by the way, the radiosonde transmits data about temperature, humidity, air pressure, altitude, and a few more parameters. Thanks to radio technology, the meteorologists don't have to wait and hope that someone finds the radiosonde although the devices still have instructions about how to return them, along with a postage-paid envelope. The radiosondes transmit their telemetry on one of two frequency bands, 400 to 
to 406 MHz and 1675 to 1700 MHz. And yes, you can receive these signals. The transmitter output is less than 100 milliwatts, but at 100,000 feet, their antennas have an impressive line-of-sight range. Most of those who listen to radio sounds are doing so between 400 and 406 megahertz using ordinary receivers, FM receivers, really. Quite a few ham transceivers have extended receive coverage that includes this range. Others use software-defined receivers, and these allow reception in the 1675 to 1700 megahertz range as well. Here's 10 seconds worth of a radio sound signal that I received at 406 megahertz. My antenna is just a dual-band, 2-meter, 70-centimeter ground plane. Any sort of omnidirectional UHF antenna will do the trick, but I wouldn't recommend you use the rubber duck antennas you find on dual-band handheld radios. Those are rather poor antennas under the best circumstances. They're fine for working powerful terrestrial repeaters, but they really don't do well with milliwatt signals 20 miles away, even if the path is line of sight. So it's one thing to listen to these twice-a-day signals, but what about decoding the telemetry? Well, you can do this too. All the data is out in the open and nothing is encrypted. There's software available that will take the audio from your radio and process it to extract the information. Just go to any web browser and do a Google search and enter Radioson, that's spelled R-A-D-I-O-S-O-N-D-E, Radiosond Software, and you'll find several choices. Recently, I was corresponding with Tony Lecren, F4GOH, about a different approach to receiving and decoding Radiosan data. He's using a tiny TTGO ESP32 development board, and he uses its Bluetooth capability to pair it with his Android smartphone. It's called the MySandyGo project, and it uses an app on the smartphone to process and decode the data. We're working on getting more information together about the project for an eclectic technology column in a future issue of QST Magazine, so be on the lookout. In the meantime, just try listening for the radio sounds. Regardless of where you live, there's a decent chance that you have a weather station not too far away that's launching balloons twice a day. It takes about two hours for the balloon to reach maximum altitude. If you live at the outer edge of the coverage area, this means, for example, if you're trying to receive a radio sound that was launched at 1200 UTC, you may not pick up the signal until about 1400 UTC. Give it a try. I'm speaking with Bob Allison, WB1GCM, and Bob is the ARRL Assistant Laboratory Manager. He also does our product reviews for us. And Bob, good afternoon. I'd like to talk about power supplies. How about that? Oh, good afternoon, Steve. That's just fine. Fire away. As you, as you know all too well, there are basically two different uh, types or categories of power supplies. There's the good old traditional linear supply and the more modern switching supply. For the benefit of the listeners, though, Bob, can you explain the difference between the two? Sure. Well, uh, the main difference that you'll see very, very quickly is the size and weight. The linear power supply incorporates a large power transformer, and that's very heavy, and it takes up a lot of space inside of a cabinet. 
whereas the switching power supply has uh, uh, one or two smaller transformers, much smaller and lighter weight. And a switching power supply can be about 80% of the uh, size of a linear supply for the same amount of current provided. 80%? That's quite a difference. It can be quite a difference. I've seen some pretty high current power supplies. These are DC supplies, by the way, uh, that are relatively small, amazingly small. What about the cost differential? Well, switcher supplies uh, typically are just a little bit more expensive, but the prices come way down due to overseas manufacturing. The Linear supplies, of course, have that big amount of weight in them, all that wire making up of a transformer. The linear supplies also have to have larger semiconductor devices uh, within as well. So besides the weight and the size, uh, the cost of the components internal to the linear supply are more expensive than the uh, switching supply. I'm going to show my age here, Bob, but I have to confess, I tend to prefer linear supplies just because I I like the fact that they appear to generate less noise, which we'll get into here in a moment. But also, I, I guess I just like the brute force nature of the thing, that it, it can take a lot of punishment and keep coming back for more, if you know what I mean. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there's some, some good aspects of the uh, linear switching power supplies. First off, they're quiet. There's no cooling fans involved. And uh, the problem is that they're large and they're heavier. And also, the linear supplies are less efficient than the switching supplies. A good switcher is about 90% efficient, whereas a linear supply is typically around 60% efficient. So that's a consideration for some people. And like you said, though, switching supplies have a higher amount of noise. Uh, switching supplies are kind of an unusual animal. Uh, Zach Lau, my lab mate, uh, W1BT, once described a switching power supply as a uh, an oscillator on the verge of running away. So it's a kind of a controlled oscillator, uh, and it uses pulse width modulation at the output to help regulate the DC output. Uh, a switching supply, because of its nature, does generate RF, and in the form of conducted emission. In other words. It unintentionally generates RF, and depending upon the filtering, uh, some of that RF gets conducted onto the power cord that you plug into the wall. And, of course, you plug it into the wall, then the rest of the house wiring is your antenna. So sometimes switching supplies can add noise to your local reception. Now, for the power supplies that I've tested, this generally isn't an issue. You might hear it slightly on 160 meters. However, if you are one of those enthusiasts that are enjoying some of our newer amateur bands, such as the 630-meter amateur band, you may want to uh, use a linear supply with a very, very low noise characteristic uh, on that band because switching supplies tend to generate RF below the AM broadcast band. And uh, you can can pick them up. It's something that we've measured in the laboratory, and if you look at Past QST product reviews, it's something that we uh, measure and we take note of is called the conducted emission levels. Now, Bob, when you're testing for product review a typical switching power supply, what are what is the procedure? Um, how do you actually go about it? Well, good question. Um, first off, I have, I have to create a load to put the power supply on. So I have a one-amp load, which 
sort of recreates the load on a typical power supply when using it with a transceiver in receive mode. So typically, uh, some of the smaller radios that don't have built-in power supplies that we'd want to buy a power supply for, um, they use uh, 13.8 volts plus or minus 15% at the input to power the transceivers. And um, what we do is we create a load, uh, a 1-amp a load and also a 20-amp load. The 20 amp load is used to simulate uh, transmitting. So on the uh, one amp load, believe it or not, is more critical to the radio amateur than the 20 amp load because when you're transmitting, you're not listening, you're not receiving, and you're not going to pick up any noise. Um, that doesn't mean that you might have another receiver in the ham shack though that will pick up the noise. But genuinely, uh, generally, a uh, one amp power supply will do it to simulate the receiver uh, draw. And what we do is we have uh, blocking capacitors, and we have a procedure to actually take uh, the RF off of the DC output and feed that into a spectrum analyzer. And so we can actually look at the spectrum at the DC output, or we could take that power supply and bring it into our conducted emissions test room where we can actually measure the RF conducted onto the power cord. And the FCC has limits below uh, 30 megahertz regarding conducted emission. It's one of those things that we, we look at with power supplies and some of the other consumer devices like LED light bulbs, uh, switch power supplies, and, of course, grow lights. Considering the emissions, uh, you said the FCC imposes limits. That being the case, why are switching power supplies so often the bane of amateurs? Uh, are they not meeting their specs or what? For the most part, these power supplies do meet the specs on conducted emissions. However, the FCC has set these limits fairly high. So that doesn't mean that you're not going to hear interference. You may have some level of interference that may or may not uh, interfere with the communications that you're trying to do. Um, so if you really don't want noise to be an issue in your ham shack, go with a linear supply. I do. I go with linear supplies uh, because I like listening on the low frequencies and very low frequencies. There are some interesting things to hear down there once in a while. And having any kind of switching power supply in the house can be an issue because switchers are prevalent. They're in computers. They're in your cell phone chargers, your automobile battery chargers. A lot of devices are, oh, gosh, we have a router in the ham shack that produces a lot of noise. And uh, switching power supplies, the noise that you hear on the receiver isn't across every frequency. It's usually every 30 or 40 or 50 kilohertz, you'll hear a group of noise, maybe about 10 kilohertz wide. You tune up the band, there's a noise. Tune up 30 more kilohertz, there's another band of noise, another 30 kilohertz. It's every 30 kilohertz. That's the oscillator uh, that's running inside that's doing the switching, and that causes uh, an RF signal as well. So that's what you want to avoid is that, is that switching noise that you hear every 30 or 40 kilohertz. And above, uh, above the AM broadcast band, you might hear it a little bit on 160 on some of the switchers. But once you get up into the 80-meter uh, uh, range and higher, you're not going to hear too much of that, uh, just by design. Now, some switchers are, uh, have better filtering than others. And I have one important piece of information always to remember about switching power supplies. For the filtering to work in a switcher, you have to use all three pins on the power cord that you plug into the wall. 
if you have a two-pronged outlet and you use a ground lifter, or they call them cheater plugs, if you use a, a ground lifter, that ground log, the case is now ungrounded, and the filtering in the power supply doesn't do very well at all. In fact, you'll have a very, very, very noisy switching power supply with a ground pin lifted. I never thought about that. That's the first I've heard of it. <laughs> well, some of the things that we do uh, in the AR laboratory, we experiment and see what happens because we're trying to simulate conditions in the radio amateur shack. Some hams still have old wiring, or you might have a... Uh, you might be out in the barn with an old two-conductor two wiring or up in an attic or down in a basement. So not everybody has three conductors uh, at, at their receptacles all the time. So uh, those little uh, ground lifters are still used. Sometimes you have to use ground lifters. Uh, I know we had to do it in broadcasting because we'd have something called ground loops. Um, when you hook up uh, radios or equipment uh, that's at two different ground potentials, so we, you have to lift the ground at one end. Well, I know exactly what you mean about tuning across the frequencies. I have a computer here at my station, as most hams do, and you're right, of course, it has a switching power supply in it. In certain situations, uh, usually for me it's on 20 meters, and as I tune across the band, you're right, it, especially if I tune quickly, I'll hear a zoop, 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 you know, one, one burst of noise after the other spaced precisely apart. What do you do, Bob, if you've got a consumer or even a switching power supply like the one in my computer? What do you do with the noise? How do you quell that? Well, that's a good question. The first thing to do to try and uh, isolate the power supply, move it to another circuit, try another circuit. But the only true solution would be to filter the power cord. In other words, build a build a, a AC line filter, of course, on our ARRL uh, website. On the technology pages, we have a great RFI section that uh, tells you about uh, what to do in such situations. But a, a good uh, common mode choke, a, a line filter, would reduce the amount of conducted emission going into your house wiring. Okay, and that should make a difference. Is there any other way that that signal can get loose, so to speak, other than the house wiring? No, uh, it's always conducted onto the house wiring, and that's why they call it conducted emissions. There is, again, uh, some small emission from the DC cord at times, but that's usually fairly low. However, we all know how the DC cords are run around the ham shack, and uh, if you have it going near, let's say, an, an antenna by, by chance or whatever, you might get a little bit of buzz off the DC power cord, but I have not witnessed that uh, whatsoever, although it's something that we do measure in the laboratory. Well, thank goodness that you do those measurements. I'm, I'm hoping that you're going to have another round of power supply tests at some point. I believe we will be in QST. Yes, we do. I think we just, did we just, just have one, I believe, right? <laughs> did we just review? We just reviewed a few power supplies in there with uh, conducted emission plots as well. Is it fair to say, based on what you have seen in your measurements, that most of the power supplies that hams are likely to use to power their equipment, that most of those switching supplies, I should say, are reasonably uh, clean, so to speak? Yes, I would say that they are. Because uh, first off, when switching supplies first came out, it, they many of them didn't seem to have the uh, right amount of filtration at the uh, for the AC uh, line cord. Um, so we didn't. So the conducted emission levels were something that we paid very, very close attention to. And in years past, uh, the ARL lab had come across some switchers that were 
exceeded limits. But all of the power supplies that I've tested within the past 12 years have uh, met the FCC specs on conducted emission. That doesn't mean that you're you're not going to hear anything. It, chances are you you will, but again, broadcast band and lower. So if you really like listening to the AM broadcast band, you're an operator on 630 meters or or even braver, 2200 meters, you're going to want a linear supply because it's nice and quiet. It does not generate any RF. However, switchers have their purpose. They're used. Uh, an awful lot in manufacturing. Uh, they're used for mobile work, believe it or not. Um, you can build and design a uh, switcher with a different uh, AC input, for instance, um, a variety of inputs. Uh, AC switchers can take a, a variety of AC inputs. Um, you have uh, aviation uses switchers, and uh, they're used on ships. So any place where uh, weight and size is an issue, is a great place for a switching power supply. And, of course, you can make sure when you build and design that switching power supply that it has enough filtering at the AC cord. So if, if that's the case, then it should be quiet and, and useful for your purposes. Um, one other thing I might mention about the switching power supply is some AC generators that we use during emergencies um, do not mix well with switching supplies. And the reason being is many generators or inverters don't generate a pure sine wave. They generate a modified sine wave. Looks like uh, square building blocks, uh, kind of stepping up and stepping below the zero voltage line. Um, kind of follows a sine wave, but it's not a smooth wave. It has sharp corners on it. So that's a modified sine wave. And switching power supplies don't like that. You'll hear them buzz if they're plugged into an AC source like, like, a, like those generators or inverters. So just keep that in mind about using switching power supplies with certain generators. I know uh, my computer at home didn't like the generator I was uh, powering it with. Right? It buzzed like crazy, the switching power supply inside. So if you're going to run a switcher off of an emergency generator, make sure it's generating a nice, pure sine wave. That's good advice, Bob. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Tune in again for the next episode of Eclectic Tech, produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. If you have comments, email eclectic at arrl.org. This episode is copyright ARRL, and all rights are reserved. I'm Sabrina Jackson, KC1JMW. See you next time.